Hello, my name is Pedro Goicochea and this is H equals H, the H is for human, the podcast that centers on the human in HIV. Each episode of H equals H brings you content on the human side of research, health, well-being and community. H equals H, the H is for human, is sponsored by the legacy project of the Office of HIV AIDS Network Coordination, HANC. We are just returning from the U.S. Conference on HIV-AIDS 2023 that is organized by ENMAC, formerly National Minority AIDS Council. Attended by nearly 4,000 participants, we had the chance to attend different sessions on the latest and greatest interventions implemented by AIDS service organizations, community-based organizations, and non-governmental organizations as well as federal agencies that are working in addressing the HIV epidemic. A common issue that was raised during the different plenaries, institutes, and workshops was the role that HIV stigma plays on ending the HIV epidemic. And that is why episode 14 of H equals H is devoted to stigma. And to have a discussion on the topic, we have invited Dr. Andrew Spillener from California State University San Marcos and Dr. Gregory Greengood from the National Institute of Mental Health, NIMH, to share their views and perspective on stigma. Dr. Spildener and Dr. Greengood, thank you for making the time for this interview with H equals H, the H is for human. How are you doing today? Maybe we can start with a brief round of introductions. Can we start with you, Dr. Spildener? Thanks, Pedro, for having me. On H equals H, it's an honor to be here. I am Dr. Andy Spieldener. I am an associate professor at Cal State San Marcos in San Diego, and I'm also executive director of MPAC Global Action, which is a uh, global organization working at the intersection of gay rights and HIV. Thank you, Andrea. And Dr. Greenwood, can you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Thank you very much for the invitation. Really happy to be here. So as noted, my name is Greg Greenwood, and I am with the National Institutes of Health, and in particular, I'm with the mental health, so what's called NIMH. The National Institutes of Health is a part of the Department of Health and Human Services in the United States, and it's one of the leading research agencies for the U.S. government around health and human behavior. I work at NIMH in the Division of AIDS Research, and we support research that is focused on reducing the incidence of HIV AIDS and decreasing the burden of uh, living with HIV AIDS. And within the Division of AIDS Research, I am the branch chief of the Developmental and Clinical Neuroscience of HIV Prevention and Treatment Branch. And I'm a program officer overseeing a portfolio in HIV testing and social determinants of health. Thank you. So this episode is devoted to stigma. And Dr. Greengood, I understand that you have been working on the topic for quite some time and have published on the matter. So I would like to start by asking you what stigma is, how stigma relates to discrimination, and how stigma impacts public health in general and the health of the individuals in particular. Sure, I can start with the what is stigma just generally. <clears throat> stigma in general, um, it's what's called a social construct. It's something that is socially constructed 
among groups with power where there is a mark that's often conferred on individuals or groups and that that mark somehow communicates a deviation from normality. And so there's kind of devaluing and negative attitudes and beliefs about individuals or groups based on that quote unquote mark. Stigma and discrimination, they are similar and that they are both socially structured processes where unfair or unjustified harms on individuals or groups are perpetuated by a group in power. And the impacts are the stigma and discrimination takes place at several levels from structural, like policies, laws, systems, interpersonal, in the interactions with family, peers, or providers, for example, and on an individual level, which is sometimes called self-stigma or internalized, where people internalize some of those negative messages. So the main difference is that stigma is about attitudes, beliefs, while discrimination tends to be more about behaviors. So someone could have negative attitudes about someone living with HIV, but they don't discriminate against people living with HIV. Whereas discrimination is focused on actual behaviors by individuals, groups, organizations, and others that have harm on those that are being discriminated against. And maybe one more just clarification. Stigma has tended to focus on quote unquote unusual infectious diseases that emerge like at the beginning of HIV or AIDS or leprosy historically. So stigma research tends to be around those areas where it's less common, whereas discrimination researchers tend to focus on areas that are a little bit more ordinary but powerful around racism or sexism or classism or homophobia. And then the third question I think you asked was just about the impacts on public health and both stigma and discrimination can negatively impact people in many ways, both in terms of impacting their own individual well-being. It could impact their access to services. It can impact the availability of services. Um, sometimes people will not offer services to someone because of some implicit bias or stigmatizing attitude. And so there, there are some general consequences as a result of stigmatizing people that harms them both individually and then collectively. Andrew. What is a stigma for you? How many types of stigma are there and how stigma impacts the lives of the people and the people's health? Great question, Pedro. The definition of stigma that uh, sociologist Irvin Goffman came up with is that stigma is a way of devaluing a person when a certain identity becomes known. And whether it's disability or poverty or things like that, 
these are all stigmatizable identities where when people discover this part of your identity, they think less of you. They think that you are somehow a marked person or somehow less valuable because of this identity. And so in the HIV space, this became very obvious when HIV first emerged. It emerged in the U.S. primarily in certain communities, people of color communities, people who use drugs communities, immigrant communities and LGBTQ communities. And for a long time, the stigma that we felt around HIV was shared across these communities because everybody was feeling it. People had these assumptions about their identities. People were losing their jobs. People were unable to complete their educations. People were being excluded from family events. Back in the day, people would have a problem eating off the same plate as you if, you, if they knew that you had HIV. We had people that thought you'd get it from toilet seats. In my own life, my brother, when he first found out I had HIV was just like, you're not going to date anymore because no one should date somebody with HIV. And that's what he honestly felt, that nobody should be involved with somebody with HIV, that our sex lives, our intimate partners, our possibilities for intimacy should be over. And I think over time, stigma has persisted and remains a critical issue that we have to deal with. It doesn't look the same way all the time, but the sentiment's the same. Dr. Greengood, do you think we need to work on a science of a stigma? Well, I can say that there's been a lot of research around HIV stigma from the start of the epidemic, and there's been discussion throughout the many decades about the importance of understanding, measuring, addressing, reducing HIV stigma from implementers and policymakers and researchers and community members. And when 2023 I think there's good news and bad news. So on the good news, I think there's been through many years of research studies and programmatic experience, there's really a large body of knowledge around how to think about stigma, how to measure HIV stigma, how to understand how it impacts people and places and systems and then the ways to reduce it. And so there's been really great progress in the HIV stigma research that I think has really been a model for other stigma researchers in other areas like cancer stigma, for example. There are a couple of really foundational studies, but there still is more research to be done. And largely in the area of intersectionality. I don't know if folks are familiar with this term, intersectionality, but it, it's a concept that emerged from Black feminist theory and activism. And Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw's coined the term intersectionality, where it really posits that there are these different social categories that intersect at the individual level and those categories are really reflect kind of these interlocking systems of oppression, of privilege or, or advantage or disadvantage at the kind of social structural level. And we've been interested in what we are calling intersectional stigma and discrimination. And Michelle Tracy Berger is a Black feminist scholar who is the person who coined the term intersectional stigma based on her 
experiences with women of color living with HIV. And so there's been much progress, and I can talk about that progress as well, around HIV intersectional stigma and discrimination. But there is more work to be done, particularly in the space of rigorously measuring what is intersectional stigma and discrimination within the HIV context. And then in terms of addressing and intervening, what does an intersectionality informed intervention look like? And what are the impacts on stigma as well as HIV outcomes? Andrew, you've been very much involved in producing reflections and researching on HIV stigma. So you published a paper on POST in 2020 titled State of Stigma 2020. So probably we can talk about that as a starting point. Sure. It's interesting you say reflections and research. And I do feel because I'm openly living with HIV and a researcher, I do have that lived experience that many people living with HIV have. It's one of the things that we all know. We all are familiar with stigma, either because of HIV status and also more likely because of the intersectional identities we have. And when I say intersectional, I mean, we all have these multiplicity of identities. And, you know, I'm not just a person living with HIV. I'm also a gay man. I'm also a person of color. And all of those things kind of come together. And when I think about stigma, I also think about how much stigma has changed over time, but it remains persistent because it feels like no matter how much education we do, no matter how much we tell our stories, people still pass laws against us. A lot of times they focus on things like our sex lives, like they don't want people living with HIV to have sex, particularly if it's gay sex or for sex workers, people don't want us to do that. And I wrote that piece as a reflection of the fact that many people thought that think of stigma as something in the past, even our allies in the community of people living with HIV think that stigma is over and that it's not happening at the same place or it only happens in certain situations. Stigma is still commonplace. People still get blocked on Grinder when they say they have HIV. In my world, I mostly date only other people living with HIV, so I don't run into it as much, but I've seen how sometimes people will have issues with dating or still have issues getting clinical care or even being able to talk about your HIV status at the job or with friends. We still have that level of stigma attached to it because in the end, people do judge us. Most of the research that I've done with other people living with HIV, there's been a lot of stigmatizing events that frame that. There's also expectations around stigma that people have, that people will be judged by their family members or by the community, that they're going to be considered, quote unquote, a slut or somebody who is not clean anymore. And I put that in quotes. And I think that all of those discourses, all of those feelings that people have, all of those messages society tells us do produce stigma that does tell us that if we're gay or if we have HIV, we're not supposed to be having sex. We're not supposed to have bodily autonomy and we should have bodily autonomy. So I wrote that piece to assert that stigma is still there, still happening. Even to somebody like me who's had HIV since the 90s, I still experience stigma in different ways. What is HIV stigma and how can you define it? Yeah, I think the, so there is a, a very clean and clear definition on the HIV.gov website that reads HIV related stigma becomes manifest and expressed 
through our rational or negative attitudes, behaviors, and judgments towards people living with or placed at risk of HIV. And so to your point that HIV stigma impacts people who are in positions or within communities or populations where there's a greater vulnerability to HIV. And so HIV stigma can apply to someone who's not living with HIV, but who may be hesitant or cautious to go for HIV testing because they don't want to be seen as someone who needs HIV testing or passes on the opportunity to do post-exposure prophylaxis or pre-exposure prophylaxis because of the stigma tied to HIV. They don't want to be seen as someone who may be at risk. You had this great conversation with Dr. Michelle Androsik, I think on episode eight, and one of the barriers that she identified for people participating in the HIV vaccine trial network was related to HIV stigma. So it's impacting people's participation in vaccine research and pre-exposure prophylaxis and other prevention. There's a secondary as well, like people who work with people living with HIV are often stigmatized, even though they themselves are not living with HIV. So what is your take on the stigma towards people that are not living with HIV, but are stigmatized just because they are vulnerable? As an example, people that want to start taking PrEP and do not take PrEP just because that is stigmatizing. I do think that the strongest association we have with stigma and HIV is really around gay sex and sex work and other kinds of issues around bodily autonomy. I think when we look at stigma and how it tries to prevent us from have being bodily autonomous, being able to make decisions about our own bodies, I think we start to see how it connects with these other kinds of vulnerabilities and communities. I think in the U.S., there's a direct correlation with race, poverty, and substance use, violence, and HIV status and sexuality. So when we look at these ways in which all of these intersect in HIV, very specific ways, when I look at how stigma affects all of us, anybody who lives in that marginal realm is trying to take control of their bodily autonomy, especially in this day and age, when our bodily autonomy is being attacked constantly, whether you're trans, whether you're a gay man who is tired of taking PrEP, That's the other thing that's happening is people are getting tired of taking some of these meds. And I've met so many people that are recently diagnosed who people ask them, why weren't you on PrEP? It's like this weird way of blaming people again. And it's a bizarre thing because I've been living with HIV since the 90s and I take treatment. I take care of myself in some ways. I try to, I build community so I can thrive and I'm still here. So when we have somebody who's recently diagnosed, it's so shocking to me that we go back to blaming them. Why weren't you on PrEP? But I think there's still a challenge with normatizing PrEP usage and sex lives. So I think that's also part of it is there's this stigma that anybody struggling with bodily autonomy was gonna, is going to face. How do you measure stigma? How do you elaborate the correct research question to conducting research on stigma? That is a thorny question. I will say that there are other 
institutes at NIH that have been invested in HIV stigma research, but stigma research in general. And one of those institutes or centers is the Fogarty International Center. And the Fogarty International Center led a workshop around understanding and measuring stigma and intervening back in 2017. And then in 2019, they sponsored what's called the Stigma Collection in the 2019 BMC Medicine Collection. And there's a terrific article on the health stigma and discrimination framework that provides a roadmap about how to think about stigma and it gives direction on how to measure it. And so broadly, the health stigma discrimination framework starts with what's called drivers and facilitators. So understanding the drivers of stigma, measuring stigma at the structural level, like policies and laws. So for example, there's a group that we're funding that is looking at how to measure structural stigma related to HIV And a lot of that is looking at anti-LGBT policies and creating indexes as a way to measure structural stigma. Then there's the manifestation, the marking, where groups mark individuals or groups based on HIV or some other status or position. And then there's what's called the experiences and the manifestations. And that's another place where you can measure So on the experience side, where I think much of the research has been to date, has been measuring stigma within that context of people with lived experiences. So it's measuring internalized stigma and anticipated stigma, enacted stigma, and secondary stigma. On the manifestation side, it's measuring stigmatizing attitudes and stereotyping and stigmatizing practices. And so those are the places where people are trying to measure stigma in order to then understand what happens when people have been stigmatized or they're stigmatizing and how does it then impact outcomes on an individual group or community level. And so in this uh, 2019 BMC Medicine Stigma Collection, Not only is there this excellent article on the health stigma discrimination framework, but there is an article that reviews all of the measures of stigma, kind of cross-cutting stigma and HIV in particular, and looking at some of the research around how reliable and how valid are these measures of stigma. And maybe as a summary, There's been a great deal of effort. There's been a great deal of progress. Having a clear conceptual framework, understanding where to measure and how, and then advancing measurements that really are reliable and consistent and valid over time are something that a number of researchers in the HIV stigma work have been pursuing. And there's been some successes in a number of scales. Why there is need to do research on stigma? I think that a lot of the research on stigma has focused on certain aspects of stigma. And a lot of the focus on stigma has been about feelings and not necessarily about other impacts of stigma. And I think when we look at it from the point of view of people living with HIV, 
I always think that stigma research should happen and it should have a purpose. It shouldn't just be to prove a relationship to variables. But I think oftentimes when we look at the research that gets published, I wonder at what the material impact is of the research or whether they're just testing for relationships between variables. And when I read a research study and in the end, they're asking for more education, for instance, or more research in the area, I'm like, well, that's all you got. Like you did all this research and that's all your conclusions are versus like really being able to look at how stigma impacts people differently. So one of the studies that I worked on with Dr. Russell Brewer in Louisiana um, was the stigma index. And in the stigma index, there was a data point that the research team, we went around and around and around on. And there were white gay men and black gay men who went to the same clinic, all living with HIV. And we found a relationship between both stigmatizing experiences, all of these people experienced stigmatizing experiences in the clinic. But what we found were that the black gay men refused to go back to the clinics after the incident. And the white gay men would go back. And we went round and round around what this could be. And we realized that white is a protective factor in the US. And that's what was happening in Louisiana was that because of the fact that they did not have that kind of institutional marginalization and exclusion based on race, they would still go back and the African-American gay men would not. And that fascinated us. And it's one of the things when I think about stigma research is that's really what we should be looking at is what are some protective factors? What are the actual impacts of stigma beyond how people feel? And what can we do about stigma that's not just let's educate people? We've been doing anti-stigma workshops forever, and we know that people leave stigma workshops and still believe that people living with HIV shouldn't have sex. There's lots of clinicians and nurses who don't believe that we deserve a sex life. <laughs> I admire the work that Prevention Access Campaign is doing, and it shocks me how many people will sign on to U equals U and not actually believe it and not enforce it in their clinics. Like, you know, encourage people living with HIV to have sex, talk to us about our sex lives. Don't just punish us for it or wonder if, is your partner on PrEP? Are you viral? Okay, if I'm virally suppressed, why does my partner need to be on PrEP? <laughs> and people can't get it out of their heads. They still don't necessarily want us to have sex. I can't even imagine what cisgender women go through in terms of wanting to have kids. I can't even imagine what cisgender women living with HIV go through. I do think research should always have a point and it should benefit the community. And I don't think we hold researchers accountable enough to that standard. So when you, we read a research study or we see if you're a researcher and you're reviewing a, a grant proposal, for instance, and all they're doing is measuring relationships with variables, really push back before you award the money and think, what are you really doing? What is the actual good that comes out of this research? And how will this benefit people living with HIV? Or other people, like, I do think one of the questions you raised, Pedro, which I, I respect is that there is like this HIV stigma is pervasive and hits people that don't have HIV. It hits people that don't have HIV because they're gay, because they're a sex worker, because they're in these other communities, they're queer, they're gender non-binary, and it hits them in a different kind of way. And I do think, what are we really doing when we look at stigma? What is the HIV stigma index? Probably you can start with the origin, how, how it came up. The HIV stigma index was created by the Global Network of People with HIV International Plan Parenthood Federation 
and UNAIDS as a joint program to be able to assess stigma. It's an intervention by people living with HIV for people living with HIV. So to do it, you need an, a network of people living with HIV to do it nationally. So this is done on a country by country basis. And the network of people living with HIV gets trained. So there's a local research partner and they get trained on how to use the tool, um, how do you uh, recruit people for it? How do you uh, actually ask all the questions in the tool? And then how do you clean the data? And so how do you do quality assurance? And then after that process is over, then the people living with HIV and the researchers come together to analyze the data and then create solutions to stigma in that country context. So over 130,000 people living with HIV have actually participated in the stigma index. So far, it's been done in like 80 countries. <laughs> and it really, for a long time, was the tool that we knew was by the community for the community. And a lot of the researchers would get frustrated because some of the implementation wasn't the same. The methodology for recruitment wasn't the same in every country because every country's epidemic looks different. And the people living with HIV would create these like, okay, we need to interview this number of women, this number of men, and uh, every country would make that decision separately. And there was a magic to the stigma index when people living with HIV participated in it, a few things happened. Number one is most people realized they had been stigmatized. Even the people who were like, I'm empowered. I tell everyone I have HIV. Then when they go through the process, they're like, oh yeah, I guess that was about stigma. And people start realizing that they've been stigmatized. The real magic though, is that the community analyzes the information and produces the solutions. And that to me, that's the magic of the stigma index. Stigma index 2.0 Oh, happened with consultations with researchers and leaders living with HIV and, and constituents of people living with HIV to really take into account, number one, to have a standard methodology for recruitment. And number two, to add questions about intersectionality. The first stigma index did not necessarily do that. So it really had a hard time capturing issues of trans people as well as gay men, as well as indigenous people. And also one of the things that happened is the original Sigma index was put in really racially homogenous countries for the most part. And when we started going to places that were more heterogeneous, where there was more multiracial, there were other issues happening that the stigma index wasn't able to capture the first one. So the second one really adds questions and adds layers that are supposed to get at intersectionality. Because of COVID, the stigma index 2.0 has not really been implemented at scale <laughs> because no one's been able to do anything. I look forward to the future data sets that come out of it and the future interventions that come out of it. But that's really the power of the stigma index is it's built by the community for the community. It's implemented by the community. It's analyzed by the community. And the solutions come from the community. What is your say on the people living with HIV uh, stigma index? Are you familiar with it? I am familiar. I think that what's been really wonderful is that this effort has been really led by and for people living with HIV from the start, creating an index, a standardized tool to gather how much stigma, how much discrimination are impacting people living with HIV, what are the types of stigma and discrimination being experienced, where is it happening, and what are the potential points to intervene 
and then using the tool to monitor it. There was a really excellent article in 2021 um, looking at the people living with HIV stigma, the 2.0 index, and reporting on a number of the benefits and improvements around measuring the prevalence of stigma. So for example, one third of the respondents are reporting some type of stigma in HIV care settings. Understanding that these high rates of stigma experiences are impeding the access to HIV services. They've incorporated a new people living with HIV resilient scale. They're incorporating the issue of intersectionality. And so I'm happy to say that one of our funded researchers, Dr. Stefan Baral at Johns Hopkins University, through funding from the NIH Office of AIDS Research and NIMH, we were able to provide some supplemental funding to Dr. Baral to work with GMP Plus around standardizing some of the sampling and analytic strategies for using the data from the people living with HIV stigma index. I would like to address the elephant in the room in regard to stigma on people willing to participate in HIV research studies, but do not do that fearing to be seen as guinea pigs. Yeah, I am aware of the stigmatizing process that happens for participants in research studies. We haven't funded any research looking at that research, so to speak. But building on what we know, I think that one of the efforts around stigma reduction is talking with people who are experiencing stigma um, and helping them build the skills, the resiliencies, the resources for them to individually um, protect themselves, for them to be advocates for change, for them to play an educational role. It is an extra burden placed on research participants, no doubt. Here folks are volunteering um, their time, taking risks with eyes wide open, and having the extra burden of having to deal with negative attitudes or beliefs, stereotypes that are levied at them. So I think building on some of the lessons learned from the stigma reductions that have been focused on individuals and groups in terms of support, reframing, advocacy, self-care, and so on. I know you didn't ask this, but I'll offer this anyway. And that is there have been some unintended consequences related to stigma research, perpetuating more stigma. So not only are people participating in HIV prevention or vaccine trials and encountering stigma as a result, some of the stigma research itself has been stigmatizing. And I think there's been several groups who've been calling attention to this. For example, we're funding a study um, that is looking at this exact process. So there's been more research with people who are transgender or non-binary. And that research has tried to understand some of the stigma and discrimination that they experience. 
But this research group came forward and said, some of the research that you're doing with us is traumatizing. It reinforces some negative stereotypes. It reinforces some underlying trauma that we've experienced. And how could this research be done in a way that reduces this unintentional harm? And so we're funding a study that is doing just that, trying to make sure that our stigma research doesn't unintentionally stigmatize or re-traumatize the very communities we're trying to benefit with our funded research. Every July 21, we acknowledge the HIV Stigma Awareness Day. Why do you think we need a Stigma Awareness Day? We need a Stigma Awareness Day because people think HIV stigma is over, they think HIV is over, and we need to keep on raising the flag on it and raising the horn to say stigma is still present and we need to eliminate it. And you're not going to end the HIV epidemic, which everyone in the U.S. is talking about. Everyone in the world is talking about, we're going to end HIV by 2030. You're not going to do it without taking stigma seriously and really doing interventions to reduce stigma. Greg? Inevitably, whenever you're talking with communities impacted by HIV, implementers, service providers, researchers, policymakers, time and time again, someone says, we need to address HIV stigma. The stigma that we experience continues to create barriers, and we need to address those social processes that are perpetuating stigmatizing attitudes and beliefs and behaviors. Um, and so while there's been a tremendous amount of work, there is still more work to be done. We're in the midst of, I think the human rights campaign just declared a state of emergency for LGBTQI plus Americans because of all of the anti-LGBT policies and laws that have really spiked throughout our country. And so not only is, are there new pressures, but there's old pressures that remain. And it remains one of those front and center issues that continues to need to be addressed. And having a zero um, HIV stigma day helps call attention to that important work. We are getting to the end of this episode, and I wonder if you have any final remarks. Final remark would be that we all have the right to make choices about our bodies. And if we look at other people and think they don't have that right around their own bodily autonomy, around their own sex life, around their own sexual practice, we really should take a step back and think about why. Because as queer people, as a gay man, as somebody living with HIV, I have just the same rights to sex and connection as anybody else. Greg? I just want to call attention to two resources. One is a CDC resource and the other is an NIH resource. We can all help in, in stigma through our words and our actions in our everyday lives. And CDC has this wonderful Let's Stop HIV Together stigma campaign. And if you go to the CDC, Let's Stop HIV Together, you'll see different stigma scenarios and tips on what you can do and make a pledge to reduce stigma and so on. 
And then the NIH resource I mentioned earlier, and this is more for those on the research side, the NIMH, the Fogarty International Center, and the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA, we came together and developed a stigma and discrimination research toolkit. That's a collection of evidence-based resources for stigma and discrimination research. So check it out. Just Google NIH Stigma and Discrimination Toolkit. And thank you for having me today. I want to finish by expressing a huge thank you to Dr. Spildener and Dr. Ringwood for being with us in another episode of H equals H. This has been a great episode that I'm sure our audience will enjoy and from which they will learn a lot. Thank you for that. And with our esteemed audience, stay tuned for another episode of H equals H the H is for human. Do not forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your acquaintances, colleagues, friends, and family. And with me, it will be until next time in a new episode of the H is for human, the podcast that centers on the human in HIV.